0: everybody and welcome back to gear 30 on the blister podcast network i'm jonathan ellsworth and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com okay today our guest is carl moriarty who was previously the design director at arcteryx and is now the design director for rafa cycling apparel And in this conversation, we talk about Carl's really interesting career in the outdoor industry. And then we dive into several principles of technical apparel design and how those factor into the use of certain materials and how being clear on those principles can help us to evaluate some of the very many advertising claims that we are frankly inundated with all the time from various companies about new pieces that they are coming out with. So I think that you are going to find a whole bunch of food for thought in this episode. And so let's get to it. Well, Carl, how are you today? And where are you today? Hey, Jonathan,
1: I today am kind of Dog tired. It's just it's the end of a long day. I think was like on you know we're coming to the eleventh hour of Zoom here, and
0: I am in North London, uh, Kings Cross in the UK. Kings Cross, North London. So I, I am catching you at the end of your work day. So um, thanks for doing this at this time and talking with me rather than, you know, going home and shutting things down. And we're, we're podcasting. This is like super fun. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Well, listen, so the purpose of our conversation here today is to perhaps dive a bit deeper into some pretty fundamental concepts that have been touched upon specifically in some of our other Gear 30 conversations about apparel and soft goods. And so I'm really looking forward to to doing this. And so in a way, I think this episode is going to serve as a nice companion piece to some of those other apparel conversations that we've had. But before we get going there, I'd like to have you talk a bit about your own background and why we would be talking to you about these particular topics. Cool.
1: Yeah. What, what am I, I guess... I guess I've been kicking around the outdoor industry now for, it's coming on 20 years. I guess I kind of cut my teeth, uh, in the design team at Arcterics and, and made my way through sort of through the ranks there, spent some time leading apparel design there. And then, um, more recently, I've been over here in the UK working with Braffa, um in the cycling industry and just sort of building kit. So, like I said, when we met, I just had been listening to a couple of the conversations and I just thought it'd be really neat to, to dig into some of the ideas that maybe drove some of the work we did at Arcterics and some of the things I've learned along the way. And yeah, thought it'd be neat to have a chat. Where are you from originally? Uh, Wellington, New Zealand. Been a long route to, to London in the UK. So, a little bit of time in Australia and some university there. And then um, a long time in, in Vancouver, enjoying the mountains in BC. And then, yeah, the last two years here in London. So, it's a
0: mixed bag. Well, wait, mixed bag in the sense of you've lived a lot of places or mixed bag in the sense of some good and some bad things about having moved around? Because I'm... I, I find that really compelling. I, I think, first of all, anybody who's had the chance to live in different spots and kind of live abroad from wherever they're originally from, it's such an amazing and compelling and perspective changing thing. So, I am slightly envious hearing you talk about, you know, from New Zealand to Australia to Vancouver to London. On the face of it, that sounds pretty sweet.
1: Yeah, man it's been it's been a really good journey, and um, we're so lucky to get to do what we do. And, um, and it's been really neat to be able to do it in a couple of different places as well and get a feel for how it works um, in different places and how, how to approach it and to keep learning as we go. So, it's good to be challenged at work, but it's also good to be challenged outside of work and to keep things changing and moving. So.
0: Your formal education before you got to Arcterix. what did you study in school? So I studied industrial design
1: and then kind of spent most of my time working on sort of ergonomics and then on design in society and like what's the purpose of design and and what should we try to achieve with what we're doing. So that was kind of my bent, but I spent most of my time in the Grampians climbing and trying to like see how many design projects
0: I could do from a tent. So wait, are we talking design at the broadest level here? You haven't even mentioned the word apparel when you're talking about like your formal education. So are you talking about like we're thinking about city planning and urban design or are we a bit more focused or were you a bit more focused on specific products or specific garments? The industrial design programs are really about, I guess,
1: looking at product design, and really looking at the human interface with technology and products and how do we create, yeah, the user interface for objects that we will have to interact with. And so, you know, in its most pure form, industrial design kind of grew out of automotive, I guess, and then, you know, into electronics and small electronics and, and industrial design is, is, I guess, humanizing those technologies and making sure that they're actually like a good like user experience. Yeah. One that they work, but then I guess also like the idea that they're compelling, that we want to use them. Um, and that, you know, wherever possible, we can actually make that, that use of the product, like more enjoyable or more intuitive. Um, and I guess that's sort of, yeah, what we've been focused on.
0: So when you get to Arcteryx, what did you kind of like, like, first of all, like, why would they have hired you? right like what were you bringing to the table at that point versus what sort of a crash course or education did you get right from having started that gig yeah it's i mean i
1: started in the shipping department um and you know just Putting is just when apparel had launched, and so yeah, I think we were putting Gore-Tex jackets into boxes and shipping them off to mountaineering um, mm-hmm. down in the U.S. And just like I got to learn all of the outdoor stores of the U.S. by putting like two and three like Alpha S V jackets into a cardboard box and then sending them out FedEx. Um, and that was kind of my introduction, but I guess it was at a time in the company when it was small enough that that everybody on the team could all fit into one pub on a Friday afternoon, and just got to know the team there, and sort of made some connections, and then sort of got the opportunity to help out on odd jobs, and just kind of work my way in slowly with, you know, showing, you know, maybe my perspective, or what, you know, what I had to offer, and um, I was really fortunate to um, to have a couple of amazing mentors who I guess just sort of one needed the help at the time. Like it was pretty chaotic days and everybody was sort of like working late and burning the midnight oil. And so there was just an opportunity for all hands to, to dig in. And yeah, I was really fortunate to, to have an amazing mentorship into soft goods
0: design, um, through the team there. You mentioned trying to do a lot of climbing, When you were in school, what sports were you most into sort of as a kid or as a university student? And then has that evolved? Are you into sort of exactly the same stuff these days? Or, you know, how has that shifted around your focus? Uh, Not even your focus, what you're literally doing when you go outside? Growing up in New Zealand, I think, you know, you're constantly outside. I think,
1: you know, like we got home from school and like mom told us we could come indoors at 6.30 Um, and until then you'd be like, mom, it's raining and she'd just be like, dinner's at 6.30, you can come in at 6.30 and so, you know, just spend a lot of time outdoors as a kid and and probably running has been the big constant through all those years but um, certainly, discovered climbing like in the sort of the later half of high school and spent a lot of time with that and such an amazing community and an amazing way to 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 travel i guess and was really fortunate to to sort of fall into the climbing community and travel a bunch and then end up in vancouver and discover mountain bikes and then from mountain bikes to backcountry skiing and um just you know everything that the coast mountains there have to offer. And then, you know, you get a little bit older and you're like, oh, I should probably get a little bit more fitness. And then you start riding road bikes and then, you know, you end up in London and you're addressing middle-aged men in Lycra. And um, it's a journey. It's a journey.
0: It is a journey. And it's cool. I love how these different Activities and our appetite for them and passion for them can evolve and sometimes we'll have a season where it's certainly true of my own life where I was intensely interested in climbing right and sort of was skiing first, but got really interested in climbing and then sort of jumped back into an intense passion in skiing. And then the mountain bike thing really evolved. And so it's kind of this like constant evolution. And then if you happen to move to a different spot of the world... That's going to affect what you're doing all the time. And I actually, I fully embrace all this stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, hey, like climbing is such a tough
1: taskmaster and you got to stay on top of it or it, it just runs away from you so quickly. So, it's kind of nice to have a few things you can fall back on there are maybe a little bit more forgiving.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's some very helpful background information in terms of who you are and what you've done and been up to, and so um, I think we dive into some of these uh, some of these specific topics that you and I have talked about. Where do you want to start? Um, yeah, I think
1: I think what's interesting is to think about when we're building apparel systems, and I'm going to preface this conversation by saying that and um, no way shape or form am i a scientist or do i come from a lab background um but i think it's just interesting to sort of think about human physiology and the way we engage with the environment and how that underpins what we're trying to do when we create these clothing systems and and what what we're really trying to and what realm we're working in okay so where do we go I guess we start with the fact of like, what are we trying to do? Like, we start with the fact that we're just a little ball of energy and we're going. Outside of our comfort zone or outside of our protective cocoon of our homes. And then we're a little ball of energy in an enormous environment, which has infinitely more energy than us. And so everything in nature wants to be in equilibrium. And so if we go outside and we're warmer than the air around us, then we're just going to be giving that energy to the cold air around us because it's sucking us into equilibrium. If you lie down in the snow within 24 hours, you're going to be the same temperature as that snow. And so that's kind of the dynamic of what we're dealing with when we're building these systems. The way I've always looked at these systems that we're building is we're trying to create a microclimate around us that we have some control over. So if we're losing all of this energy um, to the environment around us, then the goal of these systems is to build a microclimate that and give us control so that we can actually protect ourselves and have the ability to... Um, regulate as best we can um, within this ecosystem or within this environment.
0: This feels like a pretty different way of talking about or thinking about how people actually go and buy apparel. I mean, it's like, okay, somebody listening to this, they're a passionate mountain biker or they're a passionate climber or they're a passionate, you know, resort skier, And they're like, I don't know. I just need something that's going to keep me warm and or dry or isn't going to cause me to sweat like a pig while I'm either running up a mountain or pedaling up a mountain. So you're sitting here talking about Microclimate management and the rest, and so I think that's a that's a good sort of pulled back perspective in which to get into all of this. But it is striking. Like I'm just not sure that this is how most people. They're just like, dude, I I need a jacket that's going to work for this particular activity. You agree with that? Yes,
1: and I think that's where the more we can break it down to the fundamentals though, the better we can understand the choices we're making because you go out there and there is like so much available and everybody's got a story to tell you. And this is the thing right now is like everybody's spinning something or selling something. And I think how do we make sense of like all these different messages that are coming in and all these different concepts that are getting presented and so i think what's neat is if we go back to this interaction like the microclimate we're trying to um create and what's affecting it and we can look at it and we can break it down to like simple principles and like the first thing is like how are we losing the energy the environment around us. So we've got to deal with radiation. We've got to deal with conduction. We've got to deal with evaporation, um, and we've got to deal with convection. And so the microclimate is trying to help us manage those elements. And so then within that, we got to say. How protected do we want to be? What things are going to be coming at us? Like if I'm riding a chairlift, then I've got to deal with like really different elements than if I'm like hiking up skin track or, you know, if I'm running along a mountain ridge, like all of these things, like we're trying to um, mitigate different mechanisms of heat loss.
0: And your point is that you feel like this just gets a bit lost on people when we do have all this advertising coming out saying this new fancy fabric is the new end-all be-all
1: yeah and it's like how do we create some priorities um to help us choose like what, are, are we interested in the most breathable or do we want something that's air permeable um or how do we know the difference between the two and and then start to think about which one do we want
0: yeah so so where should we go next
1: I think it'd be really good to like dig into this thing about like breathability versus air permeability, because I think, you know, like it, it kind of comes up quite a lot right now is like some things are more breathable.
0: Some things are considered air permeable. I would say that first of all, if people even know the term air permeability, they might think air permeability and breathability are just synonyms, the same thing. And you, it seems like you wouldn't want people to think that. So, do you want to like talk about what you think the differences are here? Yeah. So, I think classically, breathability
1: has been used to talk about moisture vapor transfer. How does water move through and out of these systems? And so, that's kind of at a gaseous level. And then when we bring in air permeability, you're actually talking about having air move through a fabric or through a garment and actually mechanically move it through and accelerate that breathability um, through the direct active exchange of air from outside the garment coming into the garment. So another way to look at it would be if we think about like what drives um, moisture vapor or what drives fabrics to be breathable is this idea of a pressure differential and so our clothing systems breathe because again we come back to nature's desire to be in equilibrium and basically we create a microclimate we build a little buffer of um, air around us And as that air heats up um, and we begin to perspire, then it becomes humid. And as it becomes more humid, it becomes a higher pressure system than the air on the outside. And it's the pressure differential between inside the system and outside the system that actually drives that moisture to, to push through the system. And so that would be classically breathability. Air permeability is when we then have direct air movement that comes through that fabric and mechanically pushes an air exchange. And so they're two different, I guess, two different principles by which
0: we're creating or managing our comfort within the system. So let me say this then, at the consumer level, why should anybody care, right? So I I hear you when you're like, these are two different ways of trying to solve a certain problem or to create a certain microclimate but should the end consumer who just wants to get up you know that skin track comfortably why should they care which system they're going with which
1: qualities your system has can have really dramatic effect on how well it works for you because if we come back to these mechanisms of how we're losing heat having um, air permeability, basically you're losing heat by the permeability of the fabric accelerating um, convective heat loss and accelerating your heat loss through evaporation because that movement of air is like accelerating both of those mechanisms, which is really great when you want to stay cool. But if you get into a spot when you actually need your system to protect you and help you maintain your warmth, then you're actually going to end up in a bit of a hole because you've got like this this floor in, in, in the protective microclimate that you've tried to create. And so, and I think what's interesting is when brands talk in totality of like, this is the best, it's like, well, that's good for some things, but it's not necessarily good for everything. And I think we need to be, it's, it'd be nice to have a more nuanced conversation about where each different concept excels.
0: Yeah. And I mean, hopefully today we can maybe clarify that for some people. So if I'm tracking you correctly so far, air permeability and air permeable garments, fantastic things when that person, when we are actively moving in the mountains or down our paved street, right? Excellent while you're actually moving. You you okay with that? Does that represent your take? Well, it's just you're saying it's, once we stop, or if we're forced to stop and say, hang out stationary, be sedentary, perhaps especially in a mountain environment, maybe there's a storm blows in and you go find shelter somewhere. And if you got to hang out for an hour or two hours or overnight, that's where you're saying, now we may have just found a new problem.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's where you probably want something that breathable you still need that moisture to escape um, but you don't want to accelerate the escape of that moisture by having a direct air exchange in and out of the garment um, because it's just going to accelerate that heat loss um, in in, in a condition where you don't want it to
0: do you want to then identify specific fabrics that you think are particularly good for that application like still pretty good in terms of breathability, but if and when you have to get forced into a sedentary situation where you're going to spend an hour to 48 hours outside, do you have current favorite fabrics that you like for that type of a situation?
1: I mean, I think what we're really doing is we're splitting the difference between the old warhorse in and Gore-Tex, um, and it's very functionally breathable, um, but um, non-air permeable technology. And then the newer technologies that have come about um, in Neoshell and with Futurelite. And I think it's, it's a good way to think about what you're looking for when you're just trying to choose the, the performance that, that you want or what you need. Um, another way to think about it is, when we first started sort of creating modern outdoor gear, we were really talking about, um, survival in the mountains. Like, you know, we were going out for like days on end and, you know, and gear was heavy and you're like tr- sort of moving, like us sort of just trudging along and going on these adventures. And what you wanted from that system was for it to protect you. Like you wanted that fortress that you could come inside. In the last 10 years, like, Mountain time, like we've got less time. So we're like going into the mountains for shorter periods and we want to get more done. And like gears got lighter, our ambition has got greater. And so we're trying to go faster and lighter. And it's just a lot more aerobic output than we've had in the past. And so now there's kind of a demand for these much more dynamic systems that aren't so much about being a fortress. It's about how, like, what kind of work rate can I go through? And that's where bringing in this element of air permeability um, Really helps accelerate the dispersion of like buildup moisture and also the buildup of heat in these
0: systems. So, I think what you're doing is just reminding us that perhaps, and we're talking in generalizations, which I think are appropriate here, but perhaps our priorities and what we're actually trying to accomplish in the mountain, that stuff is just shifting. And we're seeing a number of modern materials and fabric options shift as well, i.e. with the explosion of stuff in the air permeability range. But you're just maybe reminding us, okay, but it would be false to say that that is the air permeability stuff is simply better at all times for all applications, right? It just really depends on what you're trying to do and what you really need in terms of protection, et cetera, et cetera, when you are going out? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like,
1: how do you set
0: your priorities um, for what you need from, from the
1: gear that you're taking with you? And what are the realistic needs um, that you need from that
0: system when you're out in the mountains? You brought up DWR. Would that be the right place for us to go next?
1: think what's really interesting right now is just um you know thinking about the issue of dwr and obviously you know over the years the industry has relied on um fluorochemistry to create water shedding on the surface of our garments and to help keep them dry because a dry garment is a warm garment and a warm garment is a breathable garment. And so, you know, a lot of the performance that we've seen through the last 30, 40 years of the evolution of this industry has been really dependent on, on fluorochemistry to keep the water just rolling off, so beating off these garments. And unfortunately, you know, over the years, we've learned that the accumulation of fluorochemistry um, in our environment is very undesirable. Um, and so, um, to Give people idea like i think roughly the problem is it has a very long half-life in our environment it sticks around for a really long time it gets into the waterways then it gets into the food chain um it gets into the food chain it gets into our bodies and we start to see you know the build-up um, of this chemistry and so you know there's been a big push over the last 10 years now to remove um fluorochemistry from from our industry and i think as we talk about what comes next, it's just really good to think about like, what are we losing with these new technologies? Cause I think we're all going to start to experience like products that maybe didn't perform as well um, as they used to. And it's just sort of understanding like what's the dynamic of that and, and how come my new jacket doesn't bead water like my old one did. Um, and so the big thing there is, talking about this fluorochemistry has this unique property where it's not just um, hydrophobic, it's not just water heating, but it's also oleophobic. And so it actually stops oils from building up inside and outside our garments. And so what's really interesting is um, fluorocarbons are the only element in the periodic table that is both oleophobic and hydrophobic Um, and so with that it's the only element we had to work with (laughs) that can do both these things and both these things are really important for for how our products perform and so I think what's interesting is, you know, people come out and they talk about the progress that they're making on hydrophobicity. Like our DWR, we've got C0, it's a new technology. It's, you know, it's as good as um, the old DWRs of the past. But what they're not talking about is that There's no oleophobicity anymore. And so things like sunscreen, the oil off our hands, the oil from our hair can all build up in our product and it's all going to reduce the performance that we get. Um, And so I think I get a little bit frustrated, I guess, when people come out and make big claims about how much progress they've made on DWR, but they aren't talking about the fact that we're still losing On the oleophobic side, um, and that we have to accept that the products that we have now aren't going to work as well as the products that we've had in the past.
0: I love the explanation you've just given, like, because I kind of will always want to err on the side of, well, it's not erring. I just would always prefer it's like, let's just be straight up and honest about what we're doing here. So I think you've just said really well, like, Problems, The downsides of fluorocarbons. And you've also talked about the unique benefits of building garments using fluorocarbons, right? So I think just as an industry, it's just good to be straight up and honest about this stuff. And and here we can now have a good conversation, I think, about, you know, given everything you've just said. I still would be on team, let's move away from using fluorocarbons. That just seems as an overall issue, something that would be good for the environment, good for our industry, even if we have to experience, say, for the time being, a reduction in a particular performance element. Now, you could very reasonably push back on that. And if you if you want to push back on that, I'm I'm happy to have you do that right now. Cause you just said, like, well, okay, that's great, Jonathan, but we're going to experience a performance loss. And I would say, yeah, I, I heard you, I get that. But for the vast majority of these products being sold, to be very frank, I don't think the vast majority of those garments are being purchased for the kind of extreme environment scenarios that are going to create all kinds of serious hazards. I'm going to shut up for a second and let you just kind of respond to that. And I'm going to say I'm 100% we need to move away from
1: fluorocarbons. Like this is just not what we want to be putting into the world. I just think we also need to acknowledge that Eliminating them um, and creating something that isn't as good is not the end goal. It's like, how do we keep pushing? And actually, I would challenge that I think that often the casual user that will notice – Um, the difference the most it's the person who's out taking a walk with the dog or like skiing like you know just a couple of days a year and they're just like ah my jacket is wet Um, and like why is my jacket wet and because then people are more inclined to buy a new jacket it's like Oh, like my jacket is all wet now. It wasn't, it didn't get wet like this when I bought it. It must be time for a new one. And so we actually like like undermine this idea of like product longevity by creating products that that require a lot more maintenance or a lot more care in a marketplace where people maybe aren't that motivated to to take care of their product. Um, And so... Um, my point is not that we should stick with fluorocarbons. My point is that we shouldn't celebrate too early that you know that we've cracked it um, and that we don't have more work to do. Because while we are now getting good water shedding from non-fluorinated DWRs, we're also getting a really short lifespan, and so that's like the frontier. And I maybe sometimes it's hard to hear people celebrating, you know, when they only got to the to, you know, they're only the third mile into their marathon, and they're like, you know, having a celebration. So we got a, we got a ways to go, and I think it's good for people to have that context and to understand that, you know, we are going to lose some things along the way, and um, and we've got to be cool with that. And don't bust the guys in customer service; who have got to deal with it. Because, you know, there's a lot of people in our industry or in customer service right now who are dealing with people who are really unhappy that their jackets are wet and no one's telling them, like,
0: your jackets are wet because we're we're making jackets that are better for the environment. These are really great points and, and great things to make sure are on people's radar. By the way, to address this for the moment, you know, there's kind of a, there's always been sort of this related issue of like washing garments right? And properly cleaning garments. With what you are talking about now in terms of where you are by reducing, by by eliminating fluorocarbons in DWRs, we are shortening the lifespan of DWRs. To what degree can we extend the lifespan of these non-fluorocarbon DWRs by washing our stuff more?
1: Yeah. I mean, the general rule is like, you should keep it clean. All of this stuff works on surface energy and so the idea that what we want is a lower surface energy on the surface of our garments um, and anything that breaks up that surface energy is going to cause water to soak into it. So anything that can break the the tension of a water droplet will invite that moisture into the garment. And so the cleaner you can keep it, keeping oils off, keeping dirt off is going to help that jacket stay dry. And um, yeah, and then the application of heat um, is going to help enhance the performance of the vast majority of DWR products that are on the market. So wash and then dry um, is going to give you the best performance that you can. Um, And we should expect to do more maintenance these days to get the performance that we want to hold on to.
0: I mean, that seems like a perfectly solid and reasonable trade-off. So, right? It's like, okay, so we're getting rid of fluorocarbons, but y'all just need to wash and dry your stuff more frequently. Yeah. That seems completely acceptable to me. And who knows? We may invent new new materials, new fabrics come up with new solutions to this. And I say this as somebody who's not known to like wash my stuff, all that, you know, regularly. So I'm on, I'm on board for this though. I'll, I'll change my, I'll change my habits a bit here. Um, can you speak at all to what extent then let's say that, or, or throw out some stuff. If, if, uh, if a runner or a mountain biker or a a backcountry skier, let's say somebody's doing those activities two to three times a week. How often in a month then, and we're going to talk about some generalizations here, but I'm just curious if you have a bit of a sense of this. How frequently then are you saying you ought to be washing and drying your stuff, your DWR stuff to keep it performing well? And then a related question, if they're doing it on the schedule you're proposing if is it is it after every single use or after a couple times out and then if they do what you recommend to what extent can they get that performance level back to the performance level of a fluorocarbon dwr that's
1: a really broad range of activities that you threw out there and i think um you know each one is a little bit different but i think the rule of thumb is really like you should wash it when it's dirty so you know, and as a mountain biker from Vancouver, I think that's like you going to wash it every time you go out. Every like time you should just yep. expect to be washing it. And then you know, if you're trail running and you're getting out and about, or if you're out skiing in the mountains, it's it's more about like when is the, when is the garment dirty? Like when has it got to that point where you're just kind of like, yeah, this is like this is not ideal. Like you know, if mom's coming over today, I got like I got to like. Put an effort in here and i think that's like a good rule of thumb and you know if you're washing your jacket every time you go out like you're gonna it's gonna have like some wear and tear on that product it's gonna like beat it down but you're gonna get much better performance out of it um for the time that you have it keeping it clean is the key to giving it a long life or maximizing whatever
0: life it's gonna have and then to that second part of the question If someone's doing that and being good about, I mean, that's a pretty easy example, like riding in wet conditions where you come back and you're always covered in mud. That's a pretty obvious even visual indicator. Like, yeah, okay, better, better wash this now. You know, let's say then if someone is properly washing and drying their non-fluorocarbon DWR gear, do you have some sort of sense of how... Able, we are to approach that longevity, the durability of a fluorocarbon DWR. I mean, if we're talking about like the best
1: fluorocarbon DWRs that were created that were around like 2010 was probably like the the prime. You know, the, the drop-off in longevity on the garment is, you know, more than 60% in my experience and what we've seen, um, you know, in terms of practical use um, in the mountains. And so that's it's, – it's, it's big. Like we're, we've got a long way to go to get back to, um, to the performance that we've seen in the past, but there's a lot of people working on it and there's a lot of people super motivated, I think, to, to find um, the next solution.
0: It's so funny. I find myself in these conversations. I'm, I think I'm realizing I'm just maybe more of an optimist temperamentally than maybe I imagined because I find this stuff exciting. Like I do think there's a lot of smart people out there in the world, in our industry, working on this stuff. And I, I tend to like our prospects of getting there. You know, and finding better solutions that than exist today. Even if we are, for very good reasons that we've already stated, saying the way that we built stuff in the past, yeah, we're not gonna do that anymore because of these downsides. So we gotta start over. Time to get creative, folks and I, I like our chances there. Yeah, totally.
1: And as you and I were talking about but just before we jumped on here, it's like one of the things that's amazing about working in this industry is just how much passion people bring to what they're doing. And I have like no doubt that that passion and energy um, is going to bring um, you know amazing solutions um, as we go forward. And in the meantime, I think it's cool that we like have conversations about how these things work and what we're up against and 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 dig in a little bit and
0: sort of. Talk to me just a little bit about what's going on at, at Rafa and like what you yourself are, you know, at this point in time kind of thinking about and working on.
1: Uh, where are we? Well, we're in the bike industry. It's busy right now. There's a lot going on. Um and what are we working on? We're kicking off Spring summer twenty three right now, so just to give you an idea of lead times, and so um, just wrapping up autumn winter twenty two um, product heading into spring summer twenty three, um, just about to launch our uh, Rafa MTB um, coming up a little bit later in the year, so getting our heads around that. just wrapped up a big project in aerodynamics um, and then just thinking about how we take that from the professional race suits and bring it down to um, retail customer level. Um, So, yeah, lots going on here.
0: Interesting. Well, on that note, I should let you go home, get some sleep, recharge, so tomorrow you can come back and figure out how to make all our gear more aerodynamic. Hey, man, appreciate the conversation. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything you got going these days. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. All right. Well, it is now time for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment. And this week, I want to celebrate and to shout out a couple members of our Blister squad and also break a little news for you here. Next week, we are going to be publishing our first ever blister mountain bike buyer's guide now this is something that we've been talking about and thinking about honestly for several years now and next week it drops and so i want to raise my glass to first of all our bike editor david golet who has done some really fantastic work on this guide And I also want to give a shout out to Luke Kappa, who has done a really nice job on the design work for this guide. And we've also received some really good feedback from Dylan Wood and Eric Friesen and a number of our other reviewers. Now... This guide is going to be available for free on our website. It's a digital guide. And this is quite a bit different from the winter ski and snowboard guide that we put out every year. It's really late. It's almost 2 a.m. So maybe that's why that's all I'm going to say about this mountain bike buyer's guide of ours. But we are excited to show you this thing next week. And again, I want to now raise my glass of this 12 year old whistle pig rye whiskey to david and to luke and to everyone here at blister who has contributed to this thing uh it's been a big effort it's been a group effort and honestly it's stuff like this as we keep kind of coming out with more and more new things it's just really cool watching our team put stuff like this together it's inspiring it also makes me tired but mostly it's inspiring And so with that, we then have arrived at the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Carl for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.